Hello, beautiful foot nerds and anyone else who ends up listening to this. Welcome to lesson 5.2. Uh, Ruth and I today are going to be discussing emotions and feelings. So thank you for being here. Thank you for making a commitment to taking responsibility for your, for your health. Uh, Ruth and I want to share our perspectives and the resources that we've learned from to date. We do not claim to be experts in the realm of feelings and emotions, but um, I know for myself, the past two weeks, spending some time going into deeper learning on the topic, uh, I've picked up a lot of things. So we want to share that. And, um, you know, I think I've learned more about feelings and emotions in the past two weeks than in the past, like, year. Um, and I think that's testament to the fact that if you want to learn something, teach it build up um, the knowledge and put in the work to be able to teach it because you have to learn it so much more deeply um, than just trying to understand it from a personal perspective. So if you have any questions about the lesson or you want to contribute any resources or a layer two conversation, please message us on Slack and let's dig in. And Ruth, would you like to start with just uh, introducing this with sharing your perspective on the topic as a whole and some thoughts to kind of kick us off? Yeah. Um... Yeah, this I, I agree with with what you said about in the last couple of weeks as we were prepping to record this, it the feelings and emotions topic. When you see it written, you're like, okay, yeah, that's we're gonna do that. And then when you actually start to dig in, you're like, wow, this is kind of a huge juicy topic, which we we've said before on other topics, but this really is like down a, I mean, like an, an infinite place of exploration and I, I I for me personally I've been a student of the human body and the inner world and I'm just so fascinated by how we come to you know feel the way we feel and our outlooks and perspectives on life and how we negotiate you know the time that we're here on the planet but I have to say in the last two weeks in trying to narrow it down to a lesson, right? So we have, you know, between 30 and 90 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever to try to sort of reduce and, and bring this home to some valuable practical information. I have had more dots connected for me in my toolbox. You know, I love Joe Dispenza and I love all of these teachers and I, and I'm a yoga teacher and we, we speak about like, you know, trying to figure this stuff out so that we can have like a high quality, healthy life. But it wasn't until the last two weeks where I actually dug into um, book. I love Mark Manson. I've mentioned him before because I guess it appears that maybe I have a man brain or something <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe like sort of a masculine voice really helps me to like bring everything to clear concise simplicity and his book called everything is effed it's a book about hope um helped me is helping me to really connect the dots of all the other tools that i've collected and also uh, the heart math institute has some really good evidence-based kind of just really good juicy stuff about the uh, heart being the organ of the feeling body and how much information goes back and forth from the actual brain to the heart. So for me personally, it helps to have sort of a textbook idea of like what we're dealing with here. And so I, I, I just wanted to kick us off by saying that between Mark Manson and the Health Heart Math Institute, I was able to put some, some concepts together more easily this time. Yeah. And you talk about tools. I think that sums up sort of what I've learned in the past couple of weeks is like, I've been navigating my life 
in my relationships and in my experience um, with a very, what I realized was I was navigating with a very limited tool set, right? Like I thought I understood mm -hmm. feelings and emotions from a personal perspective of being able to recognize them in myself and productively use them to my advantage and make sure that they're not controlling me. But this whole notion of having a much more, uh, a much broader expanded vocabulary for labeling emotions and feelings, mm -hmm. um, and also being able to really know with clarity, the distinction between a feeling and an emotion, I think gives me a much more vivid picture um, and many more tools at my disposal to kind of um, do deeper experiments in my life. And I think that's, that was one of the things I realized is like, you don't know what you don't know. This wasn't really a topic of deep interest on my radar. Now it is because I realize how much it permeates into everything that we do, both personally within community with family, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a juicy, juicy topic. Um, and hopefully we can articulate some of the, like you said, some of the major points that have sort of helped us. And I think, um, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't really talk about feelings and emotions, I realized, right? Like there was this um, sort of unsaid notion of this weird um, false masculinity, I call it, right? Like boys don't mm -hmm. cry, boys don't talk about their feelings. And this is like, mm -hmm. the, I have three brothers, or I have two brothers. So it's all boys in the family. And it just wasn't like a, there, the atmosphere in my family was not one giving people permission to feel or talk about feelings. And so, you know, most of my life, the vast majority, uh, I kind of either ignored or brushed aside emotions and feelings. And like, I did what I needed to, so that they didn't, um, create dis-ease in my life, mm -hmm. but I never really zoned in on them to try and understand them with curiosity. And so the past couple of years have been much more curious with my feelings and emotions how they integrate with health, how they make my life better or make my life um, more challenging. Um, you know, this whole notion of being able to observe the, my emotions instead of being controlled by them um, and, and also learning to harness my emotions and like being able to align my mood with things like relationships and even creative pursuits. I think all of these things together have just led, I think, to a more rich life. It's like it goes from more black and white to like, full technicolor when you really mm -hmm. understand all these different layers that there are to uncover. So yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's interesting because I come from a family of all girls and we, so this is interesting. So just to, just to kick us off in the health, in the idea of health, we, it's important for us to talk about the thinking brain and what we, you and I have sort of agreed on as a good terminology of the feeling body. So um, Mark Manson does a great job in distinguishing between the two and we'll, we'll dig in, we'll unpack this a little bit more if it's okay, because I think it's so helpful. But um, one of the things he says is how so many of us are, you know, either one or the other dominant. Um, so some, most, some of us spend time in a lot of time in the thinking brain, which is the part of us that it makes the action plan that, um, that is organized that has like good ideas and is like this really sort of clear like um, logical rational. the logical the logical planner exactly the feeling body is the part of us that is like the the animal part of us that like has that it responds in instincts or sensations or resistance or fear or joy so it's the feeling part of our bodies. And he, he, they talk about how uh, on a podcast I was listening to with him, he talks about how 
the the imbalance of the thinking if we some of us spend all of our time in the thinking brain is that we overanalyze we ruminate but we can't really take action and the thinking the feeling part of us is the one that just is impulsively um, going wherever like our bodies want to go without any concern for the consequences hmm. and um so that the reason why I'm telling you that is because that is the family of girls that I come from. And then my pops was just like along for the ride. He was like, I don't know about these, <laughs> this, he called it the est fest, the estrogen fest, you know? And it was just like all drama all the time. And I think what that did in my brain was like, I just wanted peace, a little more peace. So I might've, so we, so we essentially are. Yeah. So I just wanted to say like, that's, that's where my background comes from as far as like how I'm really trying to always like quell the drama a little bit and um, looking for ways to negotiate. I think I told you before, like, I want my insides to match my outsides or I was, I have, I have a lot of tools, but until I started really digging into this book, everything is effed a book about hope. Um, I, I was, it's all, all of those like little confusing parts are starting to become clear. Like the thinking brain has a superpower and it is to make meaning and the feeling body has a superpower and it is action hmm. that's how that's how mark manson describes it in his book is that the the he doesn't call it the superpower but essentially like the two need to be in cahoots in order for something to in our why we're talking about health is that we're talking about um changes in behaviors oh you know like if you're a if you're in the foot nerd experience right now, you're here because you're looking for tools and tools for behavior change and to kind of really shed the light of awareness on what parts of our lives are, are not working the way we really want them to. And so we have to talk about feelings and emotions in order to negotiate self, you know, which has, has a self-awareness component in order to really design good behavior change. Right. Yeah. And you used a, like when we were chatting yesterday, you used that metaphor of like um, a car and you have the feeling body who's driving the car and then you have um, the thinking brain who, no, the thinking brain is driving the, um, no, the emotion, right. this the is feeling the body is driving, the thinking yes. brain is giving directions from the passenger seat. And this whole idea that if you have disharmony between those two, it's going to be a rough ass ride. Right. You might get some accidents, you probably go places you shouldn't go. And it's just not efficient. Right. There's like this tension, this constant tension. And I think that really resonated with me because at times where I feel this internal turmoil, it's often when my thinking brain and feeling body are not in alignment. They are clashing with each other. And it usually has to do with me not taking the time to reconcile them. Right. Like even uh, I think I mentioned yesterday, like this whole notion that meditation is really mediation between the feeling body and the thinking mind. Um, totally. And I, I didn't really understand, you know, Jeff had explained this to me a few times, but it never really landed. So I really wanted to dig into this, this whole notion that um, we need to be able to distinguish. It's important to distinguish between feelings and emotions. Um, they're often, I think, mistakenly used as synonyms and they're closely related for sure, but I think they're different. So I'll share sort of my understanding of this and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. So feelings are our conscious awareness of the emotions that we experience. And the emotions are the physiological experience that give us information about the world. So emotions are 
what I feel in my body. They're universal. You'll often feel the same emotions as me. They're often transient, so short-lived, and then they kind of fade away. But at the end of the day, they're a call to action. It's like a nudge to do something. Feelings are my interpretation of the emotions that I feel, right? Like it's like I feel something in my body, and then my brain wants to assign a meaning to that feeling, right? And this is where the confusion is. It's like emotions are what I feel, but feelings are called the same word as, as feel. So it's kind of confusing. But feelings are the, my interpretation of the emotions and a way for my brain to assign meaning to the things I'm feeling. And they're personal and they um, can be longer lasting. So emotions are universal, transient. Feelings are more personal and tend to be longer lasting, right? Like emotions are body, feelings are mind. Um, you know, an example of that would be like, something happens in my experience and my heart starts beating faster. Then my brain's gonna try and determine, well, why is my heart beating faster? Is it because I'm excited or is it because I'm scared? Right. It has to assign some there's a signal that came in. The brain's job is to assign meaning to it so that I can productively use that important signal to move forward. So I really think that dichotomy is like so important to de delineate. And it was something I didn't understand for like most of my life, like 95 percent of my life. Didn't know that. Yeah. So remember when we we did there was one uh, lesson that we did where I did that seven. Keep going. I'm just going to turn my fan off. Keep going. OK, go ahead. Where we did this um, 17 second. Um, it was like a, a rampage of appreciation. And then I was like, when I love my uh, we did it in a lesson where we uh, maybe it was I don't remember which lesson it was, but I, I started to give you the ex an example for some reason about the rampage of appreciation where you would start to uh, verbally say the things that you appreciate. Right. Yep. So like, I remember I was like, I love my pillow. I love great. I love a cold orange on a hot day. And then you, yes, you sustain that. that. And I think the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is because that would be, that would be a tool because I'm trying to put all these dots together. That would be your description of an emotion, which is like a, a neurochemical cascade in the body. Mm -hmm. So like, and, and we have tools so that now that now I understand that why that works is because if I start to cultivate in my imagination the things that bring me like joy like true joy then there starts to be a chemical cascade because the heart math institute talks about when you can start to cultivate with your imagination like remember a time in your life when you were so happy and you try to remember with all of your senses like the smells the tastes maybe you were at by the seaside and there was a ferris wheel and there was like funnel cake and hot dogs or whatever right make um, it really vivid yeah it's so vivid and then your brain just starts to like really uh the those emo those emotions that has a very different effect on our bodies and since we're going there i'm just gonna i have a list of like when our emotions when we can cultivate the positive emotion and we have control which is really cool by doing these certain things, you can like improve your listening ability, your reaction time, your mental clarity, your problem solving, your creativity, peak performance, like all of our um, just cultivating in your memory, a sense of joy can up, up your whole immune system. And then the opposite emotions of like fear and anxiety and stuff, depression do the opposite of that. And then 
I mean, this is a little soon in the talk, maybe this is more towards the experiment, but I just think that the, it illustrates what emotions do in the body physically. And then the feelings, like you were saying, um, are the thinking brain's ability to assign meaning. And that Mark Manson did a great job here too. He said, we, we, well, let me just back up for a second because I wanna go back to that car metaphor. Because when you remember, like when you were starting to describe it, you got a little confused and you were like, no, no, wait, the feeling ones, who's in the driver's seat? Who's driving the freaking car? <laughs> yeah. And this was like a major aha moment for me, Nick, because, oh my God, I'm so excited. Because um, he talks about how, because the thinking brain is where we have conscious, we have a conscious perception of ourselves, like who we are. Mm -hmm. We automatically think that it's the thinking brain who's driving the car. <laughs> Interesting. So that's why it's confusing for us because we're like the thinking brain is driving the car, but all the evidence is to support the opposite. Hmm. That the feeling body is in full control in the driver's seat and that the thinking brain's responsibility or not responsibility, unfortunately, is in the passenger seat drawing the map. So the way that he described this was so juicy to me because he was like, well, so if you recognize, which I think many of us don't, I certainly am still kind of like putting this all together. Like, wait a second. It's of course the feeling brain is driving the car. That's why, you know, you're careening out of control, driving over people's gardens to get to the Dunkin' Donuts before, you know, while the donuts are hot coming out of the oven. Right. You don't even though you're them. like, I shouldn't be eating donuts. I was like, <laughs> yeah. So the whole yeah, so the 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 thinking brain is like, remember we were gonna try to eat better today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the driver's like, I'm in I'm in the driver's seat. We're on yeah. empty and I'm going there. <laughs> yeah. You shut up. I just want some donuts. <laughs> exactly. So I think that was like that was such a major insight for me. It's like, oh, right. So then, um, so that was the first major aha moment is that I, you kind of know that the feeling body is driving the car, but it's never been said like that. And the car itself, he uses, he says he likes silly metaphors, but they're so good. Cause he says that the car is our consciousness. So the idea, the idea for our, for in our, for our purposes, six pillar health is to, get the, the thinking brain and the feeling body understanding each other's languages. And this is another aha moment is that like, because we think that it's the thinking brain that's driving the car when it's really the feeling body that's driving, the thinking brain also thinks that when it, so in yoga class, I usually start the class by in a resting position and I'll say, ask yourself how you're doing today and then listen to your body for listen to your body for the answer. Like we're, once we get quiet and you start to like settle into what the practice is going to be, we go there. But when I, I can tell you right I'm, now, if I was in your class, I'd be like, Oh, I don't know what to do here. Just try, right. you know, like it's like, there's a, there's a disparity in it's like different languages. You have to be literate in one in order to provide the information to the other. Yeah. And so the, the key there was that like, I'm not going to say that anymore because we think that we're going to get the answer back from the feeling body in words. That was the other aha moment. Hmm. And now it's like, this seems kind of simple and logical, but until I actually spend time like unpacking it 
in the world. Like when I go to a yoga class and the teacher says that, I wait for the words, but the feeling body speaks in the language of sensation. So like if I see my neighbor and he's kind of a handsome man and then I get a little flustered, I get my, I start to, my temperature goes up or um, it, like you were saying, if I get nervous and the heart starts to race or in the example of the meditation, he says, okay, so the thinking brain is like, I want to implement this new healthy habit and it's called meditation. And um, so every, so isn't that a good idea? We say to the feeling body and the feeling body is like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and then he's like, okay. And then the thinking brain is like, okay, 20 minutes every day, right when we wake up. And we normally would wait for words, but the thinking brain takes over. It's like, yeah, okay, we're going to do that. But if you really paid attention, the answer would come back in sensations like, I don't know, feels, it's like resistance. Like you feel your heels digging in. You're like, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm sleepy. You know, like I don't, you can feel the body start to respond. Even I'm trying to describe it in words, but in sensations, like that doesn't sound good at all. No, I don't want to do that. Um, so the meditation time comes around, you get up four or five minutes in the feeling body is like super bored because evidently the feeling body does not like to be bored at all. And then you get up and you're like, screw it. I'm not doing, we're not doing that because why? Because the feeling body is driving the car and it's like, no, we're going to drive over that lady's roses to get to Dunkin' Donuts. That's where we want to go. <laughs> and then the thinking brain's, brain's like, like well, just we... let me out. Just let me out. I don't want to be yeah. part of this. It's like too bad. motherfucker. Yeah. We're going, we're going in for the donuts. <laughs> you're, locked. And then, you're locked in. Yeah. That, that child lock. Child lock. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so the part comes where the brain starts to create meaning. Like I either screwed that up or I work hard. I deserve Dunkin' Donuts or the third choice is like, you know, that didn't work out today, but we really want to implement that. Let's try again tomorrow. So you have these choices on how the thinking brain will assign meaning, which I was like, yes, this is making sense. So the next day, so then if we know how to speak, if we know the language of the feeling body and the feeling body starts to understand that it's going to be heard because the thinking brain will then say, well, um, I really want to implement this healthy habit because it's going to make our memory better. We're going to sleep better. It's better for our cardiovascular health. How about if we try 10 minutes and the feeling body is like, maybe, okay, how about this? We sit down for two minutes and then the body's like, hell yeah, that's easy. Or the feeling body's like, I can do that. That's easy. And you sit down and do it. And then the next day, the thinking brain says, remember how easy that was? It's like, we were talking yesterday about how it's almost like a child. And I use the term terrorist. I was like, it's almost like you're dealing with this like terrorist little child that's throwing tantrums <laughs> all the time, yeah. only until it kind of gets what it needs and a tiny bit of training, right? Yeah. And just has to get listened to. It's like, if we're, if the thinking brain is always has its fingers in its ears, it's like, I'm not listening to you. You're not important. You do things I don't want to do. It's like, there's always going to be this tension, right? Mm -hmm. um, this sense of dis-ease. Um, and I, I think in today's world, it's like, it's so easy to distract ourselves away from having to listen to the feeling body. Like there's so many things there's Dunkin' Donuts, there's phones, there's unlimited amounts of way to distract ourselves. And to not put the time and effort and energy in to trying to decipher what the heck this like prehistoric innate thing is trying to tell us, 
right? Because it's work. At the end of the day, it's it's easy to not do the work of investigating our feelings and emotions, but it creates, it's like a little bit of work. It's like anything, right? In the short term, things that are hard create ease in the long term. In the short term, things that are easy create dis-ease in the long term. So it's like, but you have to go through the motions and, and prove that to yourself because no one telling it to you will prove it to you. You have to do it yourself. And so it's part of it just takes like, some people have to get to the point where they're so uncomfortable and so messed up that they're like, well, I clearly have to start listening to this, right? Some people go see quote unquote experts and get given things, medications to take to allow them to further ignore it, which is why it never works long-term because you're not actually dealing with the problem. You're simply giving yourself a better a more sophisticated distraction technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once you start to re- once you start to investigate, and if you do it as a scientist instead of a, a, a judge, right, where there's like no bad or good feelings or emotions, they're all just there. I just have to learn like, what do they mean? It's like you're deciphering a code mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of time and energy. But, by, but the reward is so good when you decipher that code because you develop this cohesive way of blending your mind and your heart together so that you just like feel way more at peace, right? There's not this constant arguments happening, this constant tension that you have because it's exhausting. That tension is exhausting, right? And it's like mm-hmm. once you get to the calm, you're like, oh, that's what that feels like. And then it goes back to chaos. But the more yeah. you work on it, the more you balance that continuum where it's more calm, less chaos versus like can start with like complete chaos. And the crazy mm-hmm. part is, you might be in complete chaos, but you have no idea why the chaos is there or that you have any ability to reduce the chaos because yeah. we're not, this isn't really taught to us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and they can actually do like really, they have like a lot, a big body of like data collection um, with between the brain and heart. So there's a, an exercise called brain heart coherence where it's essentially like what we were talking about where you cultivate like some memories and you kind of like purposely do the work of juicing up your memory of good good feelings and with like with all that detail of the sensory experiences and then you do a meditation and it's like five minutes and then they can see the brain and the heart sync up and that they talk about how we we have um, certain some certain unidentifiable stresses that are low level all the time because the brain waves and the heart um, are not like in electromagnetic kind of sync but you can get them there and then that's part of the reason why we start to feel calm in meditation and stuff it's pretty neat um but i always wanted to talk about just real quick as an illustration, when I was listening, when you gave us the podcast, uh, Rangan Chatterjee's podcast to listen with the people from Connect, they were doing this exercise in there. And it's such a good example of like how we get confused because we have these, we have literacy and we, I noticed this a lot, like so many of us are trying to be more in touch with our feelings and our emotions. And we, we use the language of the feeling body for our thinking brain. And so David and Carol, who were running that, um, running this exercise with Rangan, they kept stopping him because he would say, I feel like, and then he would say something that was thinking. Mm, I do that so all the time. We all do. I mean, we I all do this. More now. And they would say, wait a second, that's not a feeling. A feeling would be, I feel fear, I feel resistance, or like, you know, Jeff took us through so many of these exercises on the emotional body calls where we would say like what the feeling was, that's the uncomfortable part. And we have, we've sort of 
hijacked or commandeered that language. And it seems like maybe in order to distract ourselves, even it gets more confused and confused and muddled when we can't distinguish between what a thought is and a feeling is right. or an emotion. And so it was so funny because Dr. Chatterjee was so great. He kept catching himself. And so my point is, is that it, it seems like it's simple, but it just takes so much practice. Um, but I feel like the, see there, I just did it right now. I feel like there's clarity, but it's, that's not what I mean to say. I mean, to say, I think there's clarity, right? You know, so we, so the, so then I feel bad for our, our poor feeling bodies because the thinking brain gets to use all the feeling bodies language and yeah. the feeling body's like, that's not what I mean. What yeah. I mean is I'm really yeah. scared. <laughs> that's not even your wheelhouse. Stop talking exactly. about Exactly. I'm the driver. Yeah, I'm in charge. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's so much in this lesson. And I mean, I think one thing to kind of focus on is like emotions and health. How do our emotions affect our overall health directly, indirectly? Um, and just this whole notion that feelings, feelings and emotions, whether we realize it or not, have a huge impact on our health, you know, our mental health, mm -hmm. our relationships, even down to things like how well we sleep, right? If you have all these feelings and emotions that haven't been processed or being ignored, that might be a source of anxiety or depression or dis-ease that stops you from being able to sleep, that stops you from being able to digest food properly, that stops you from being able to truly connect with someone you're in a relationship with. So I think whether it's direct or indirect, feelings and emotions underlie so many of the pillars of health. They just do it in a not um, directly obvious way until you get start to gain literacy and connect some dots. And then you're like, whoa, it affects everything. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if health is really just tuning into our experience and curiously seeking to better understand ourselves and why we do the things we do, uh, and feelings and emotions are such a big part of that, right? Because figuring ourselves out why we do the things we do really requires us to tune in and communicate with the feeling body and acknowledge its signals and acknowledge that it's driving the car. Um, and, you know, one mindset that I sort of adopted, this was probably, probably a couple of years ago, was this notion that every feeling and emotion that I experience is important and deserves my attention, right? Nice. Like this was this insight where it's no longer judging, well, is that important to tune into or not? It's like, they're all important because they wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be experiencing them if they're not important. Um, so they're all important and deserve my attention and ignoring them comes at a high physical and mental cost, right? And this, you know, evolution doesn't waste energy, right? The, there is adaptive value to feelings and emotions. Otherwise, if they were important, we would have, they would have been booted out, right? It's, it's, an, it's an energy intensive part of our being. If it shouldn't, if it didn't need to be there, it wouldn't be there. Um, you know, just like pain is always an adaptive signal. It's a, it's a call to action. And, you know, painful emotions, the most painful emotions are often the most adaptive, right? The, the deepest depression is the most potent signal to say you need to change something. Um, and I think that oftentimes, you know, strong feelings and emotions are kind of like a wound, right? If you ignore the wound, it festers, it gets nasty, it can have a lot of complications later on. Um, but if you care for it and you spend time on, on like just caring for it, washing out the wound, dressing it, it resolves. And I think this whole notion of unresolved feelings and emotions that we're ignoring or are too intimidating to approach, or we simply don't know how to approach are a source of dis-ease in a very big way, both physical and mental. And, um, you know, I say that all emotions and feelings are valuable. I also start, I've started to feel that some of them are useful, right? They're all valuable, but the action that they're directing me towards, I get to sort of like determine 
what action I take, right? Um, in that, you know, I might be angry, but is it useful to constantly be angry? No, it's useful for me to understand why I feel angry and determine, you know, spend energy thinking like, should I even be, is it worth me being angry over? I understand what the thing that created um, the anger. Is that an appropriate um, feeling based on the event that happened? Yes or no? Is this feeling uh, productive in my life? Like, no. So I've processed it. I've understood it. And now I can kind of release it and move beyond it. But unless I go through the processing part, it's this like underlying thing that I'm suppressing. And then all it takes is one thing and maybe I blow up because the anger was there. It just wasn't, it wasn't allowed to kind of filter through the system of my body and determine whether it was still needing to be there or whether it's no longer useful. Once again, though, that takes energy. And I think the fundamental reason people gravitate to, to the foot nerd experience is that they've committed to spending energy to figuring out their health. And yeah. that's a big commitment. And I think this part of it, of feelings and emotion is such a, it's so much bigger in my mind than it used to be. And it's just getting, you know, not that it's the primary focus, but it's, it is a element in almost everything I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> you mentioned something about evolution. I'm kind of stuck on that because I mean, everything you said there, Nick, about like all, I think that's an important point. Like you said all that our feelings and emotions are valuable. Some of them extremely useful. And I guess like with the idea of evolution, when we, we talk about like how, not, I mean, like nature doesn't make mistakes. And the, there was like what I was it reading does, but about. but they don't last very long. No, no. And we're here and we still have like a ton of a, t- a ton of signposts which feelings and emotions are signposts so in an ideal setting the thinking brain looks at the signposts of the feeling body right if we didn't so matthew calls this brain in a jar like we have over fetishized what happens in the thinking brain yes okay so that is one place to to, to settle in for a second we've almost demonized the the feeling body we've I think the people who over fetishize the, the brain in a jar must target and downplay the feeling body to give themselves a higher sense of importance. Yeah. We're like top in medicine, heavy. in medicine, this is a prime example. It's the most intellectualized area of work and all feelings and emotions are ignored point blank. You are not to, you are not to show any emotion because that's unprofessional. Yeah. And what they don't realize is like, that is the requirement for a human to human healing relationship. And we've purposely ixnate it and demonized it. When in reality, that's the limiting element to us actually having healing relationships with people and actually healing is like, we need human to human contact. If you eliminate the feelings and emotions, you may as well be a robot and robots aren't gonna help humans heal. That is such a great point because we need, um, so there was a formula I think that they talked about in this podcast um, where, first of all, evolution evolution creates like hope as one of our, like we have to have a story of hope or a narrative of hope. And each person who is on the planet gets to design their narrative. And then um, in order for this to all work, like for to, to be healthy humans, there's like, there's like three ingredients. It's the belief in the value of something. So something has to, the life, 
the goal, the project has to, there has to be like a deep and meaningful purpose there. There has, we have to feel that we have a sense of control of our lives. So this was one thing about the, why the thinking brain being in the passenger seat is so important because if like in extreme cases of addiction, alcoholism, drug addiction, and other like, so there's a spectrum of like extreme addiction for, to like depression, um, and then just like bad behaviors, right? Where the thinking brain feels like it has absolutely no say, because it wants to do, it has the, it has the goal of assigning meaning and creating a hope narrative. But like in, um, but if it doesn't feel like it has any say, then hope is destroyed. Hmm. And I thought that was, oh, the third ingredient is community, right? So you're talking about healing relationships and how we have to have each other. We have to be witnessed in our projects. We have to be witnessed in our human experience. We have to have another human to even just be together with so that we're witnessed and we're witnessing or supporting and being supported in creating our narrative of hope. And any one of those, if you take any one of those out, the whole thing falls apart. So, so what were they again? So the first one is the, per- there's a, the, the, the evolutionary aspect is that we're designed to have hope. We're designed to have like this idea of a better future. There will be more meat and honey out there, <laughs> right, you know? Right. Um, and, and then obviously in modern in our not in our modern world it's like so much more complex now right so there has to be a purpose of a deep feeling of meaning and then there has to be a sense of control hmm. so and then the third thing is community there has to be another person or people to support and witness and any you take away any one of those the whole model falls apart because hope is lost hope hope is destroyed according to this talk Hmm. and i thought this was interesting because then they talked about like in the 30s i'm not laughing at this it's just so hard gnarly hardcore like lobotomies they described the idea like taking initially the first lobotomies were like putting an ice pick up the nose and severing the um connection between the i guess might be corpus callosum between the right and left hemispheres (laughs) so gnarly so what they did was they we're taking people who were um, having his, you know, psychosis, you know, where the, the, the driver, the feeling body of the driver was like doing very crazy things and out of control. But what happened was that nobody was driving the car, the consciousness car. So it worked and that people would, the people who had the lobotomies would definitely chill out, but they had no sense of purpose in their life. There was like no way to assign right. meaning. So I just found that to be so interesting that, like what you're talking about there, that evolution, because I was thinking sometimes, especially in the last couple of years, I'm like, what is the freaking point? Of, what are we doing here? We're just right. fucking it all up. <laughs> but um, now that I'm kind of digging into these aspects, I'm like, oh, it makes kind of sense. Like, and and Matthew and I have talked about this a lot. Like we have no furniture. Like we have no, we keep, we keep like kind of taking out super comfortable things in our life. And I realized that it's trying to create meaning. We put ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, like hunger, if we fast, and then we have this true sense of appreciation for the food that we eat, mm. or we don't sit on a couch. And then when I write, or I don't have a car, when I ride in a car now, I'm like, this is like driving an entire living room. <laughs> you know, there's so much stuff and four wheels. The and couch I can, is back. <laughs> I can live in here. <laughs> but I think it's like, oh, I'm creating a, 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 
I'm creating meaning out of my life in a life where we've talked about the magic buttons, where there's so much comfort that I don't, I could easily get depressed, you know? Yeah. It's like, we're self-authoring our own story at all times. That's like the, having the control to be the author of your own story. Oh yeah. I had a conversation with a friend recently about lobotomies and we, the dark place we got to we won't go down this conversation. Was that like the ice pick is now a, a pill. So we do chemical lobotomies instead of physical ones with antidepressants, which is like pretty intense to talk about. But I think it just shows that we're so disconnected from just like what causes dis-ease, right? It's not a lack of pills that causes it. So the solution can't possibly be the addition of pills. And yet the intellectual thinking brain has convinced itself that it is so smart with technology that it can just solve all the problems with pills, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, if we just reconnected the feeling body and the thinking brain and collaboratively tried to figure this out together without being afraid, you know, and I, I almost feel like the thinking brain has this um, fear of the feeling body, right? It, ne- it doesn't want to admit that it's not driving the car. So it suppresses it more and more and more. And then it gets in more and more accidents, but it's like, oh, the accident happened because the tire wasn't fastened. It's like, no, no, you're not even driving, dude. Like, <laughs> pay attention. Well, that's one of the uh, Nikki pop. That was one of the other things that they talked about is that the, the thinking brain will often justify the feeling body's bad behaviors. I'll use alcoholism as an example, or no, I won't. I'll just, I mean, I don't think we even need an example. I think everybody knows when they do this in their own lives, right? Right. That um, we fool ourselves by justifying things. Yeah. You always say this, like we're, we, we're the best at fooling ourselves and the, and the reason why, because I was like, why would we do that? If the thinking brain wants is trying to design in some way, a better narrative or keep the narrative of hope moving forward, or is trying to find something meaningful to keep the keep the heart beating and the lungs pumping, then why would it want to like just justify running over Martha's garden to get to the donut shop? I know. Um, Cause I just love the visual of like me personally driving, like I'm, I'm going to go get what I want. Um, I just resonate so much. I never really realized how much my feeling body is in control and how many bad behaviors that I would I feel like I have way better tools now, but um, I forget what I was saying. Yeah, I think it gives you the ability to, once you can see it, even if you don't know how to solve it, it's like, okay, the feeling body's still driving the car, still kind of out of control, but at least I see it now, right? Because change begins with aware. If you're not aware of something, you can't have the ability to respond. You can't take responsibility for something you're not even aware of. So the start is like, start to form a mental model of of even just conceptually, right? Obviously no one's driving a car, but the concept of that can give you some a deeper awareness to be like, okay, how do I piece this into my life and make sense of my experience using this framework of understanding how the brain and the body interact together and identifying areas where um, there's a communication gap or, or, or I'm not, you know, one side is not even speaking to the other, right? The only way you can mediate is like by coming together. First part is coming together. Even if you, all you do is argue, at least you're talking, right? That, I think that's this thing from negotiation is like, if you're talking, it's good. Um, mm-hmm. Even if the talking isn't going smooth, at least you're talking. Um, right. And so, yeah, I think that's a here's, big part. Here's the, the, the experiment that I've been doing in the last couple of days in working with this is that I will be walking down the street. It's a beautiful day. 
I maybe had a tiny bit too much coffee in the last couple of days. <laughs> and I have a little bit of like what feels like anxiety. So I'm with this new knowledge in my tool belt that it's the feeling body driving the car. I try to, I try to get in cahoots as I'm going for a little walk. And I say, you know, like, um, what's going on? And then the thinking brain just comes back and answers. And the feeling body is like, bitch, you didn't even give me a chance. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. So when you were saying like how we fool ourselves, I was like, man, I keep trying to answer in words. It's a thinking brain just talking to itself, essentially like, no, I got this. But what I was going to say before is that the thinking brain evidently doesn't like to be have dissonance with the feeling body. So it will just justify everything that it wants to do if it doesn't get to draw the map where it wants to go. Um, But it it is, it's like, it's very, it's a very specific attention, attentional work, you know, it takes a lot of work. It's very hard work. And it's it's like skilled hard work. So not only is it difficult, which in and of itself, you know, if something's difficult, it, it's a source of suffering. We always gravitate away from suffering. Um, if we don't have a broader context, right? Like doing the hard thing is only done if we know that it results in something really good mm-hmm. in the end, right? That's what motivates us to get through the hard part to get to the end. The foot nerd experience is a hard thing, but the end result of better understanding our health and improving our habits is like, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's not only hard work, it's skilled hard work because you have to regain this baseline level of literacy before you even start the work. Right. And start trying to start the work without literacy is a painful experience and it makes you never want to do it again. Yeah. So it's, um, but it's so worth it. It's like so yeah. reward and you don't have to do, you don't have to be full on sprinting at all times, right? Like we have right. to regulate ourselves. And, you know, I often get excited with doing these things and I overdo it and then I don't want to do it anymore. I'm just like, well, it's not that I shouldn't do it anymore. Maybe I should just do it less intense, right? I didn't have to do Mm. it that intensely. So it's just, I really think that we miss out on the solitude of being able to have conversations with ourselves to work these things out. And just by, you know, the other day I was talking to someone, one of the neighbors and she was talking about her kids and how phones affect them so much and how like, it's so hard to get them off their phones. And we were, we came to this concept that like alone time, has been replaced with phone time. Mm-hmm. And that comes at a huge mental and physical consequence. And so to unwind that, it's like, well, start replacing your phone time with alone time and in small batches that are doable, that don't turn you off of alone time. Because alone time can be really uncomfortable if you're not used to doing it. If you have this dopamine mill that needs to be fed in order for you to not suffer, it's really uncomfortable to, to get some reprieve from that dopamine. Like it's like mm-hmm. you go through mini withdrawal, right? Which is mm-hmm. discomfort, boredom, um, fidgeting, you know, thinking incessantly. Mm-hmm. So it's like a process, but I think this whole notion of replacing phone time with alone time gives you at least the space to have the conversations to start to mediate between the thinking brain and the feeling body. And even if that's, those are rough sessions initially, it's like you gotta start somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, so the three thing, three points I had left uh, on the on the framework are emotional intelligence, expanding feelings, vocabulary, and then ruler, which I think is a really good heuristic by Mark Brackett. Um, so let's quickly go through here, and then we'll talk about some experiments because it's we're on sixty minutes, and as long as we keep it under ninety, I think we're good. So yeah, emotional intelligence. Um, you know, I did an episode with Mike 
and I'll put that as a layer three resource, a podcast on emotional intelligence. And I learned a lot doing that, researching for that. And uh, so just kind of the, you know, people may have heard of the word emotional intelligence, but I think it's a pretty, um, like not a lot of people dive into actually un unpacking that. Um, so, you know, defined as the ability to perceive, use, understand, manage, and handle emotions, right? It's like this kind of this notion of emotional literacy. And, you know, for me, building emotional intelligence is me working to get better at recognizing my own emotions. Um, and by doing that, by getting better at recognizing my own emotions, I start to become better at recognizing emotions in others, right? Like the work has to start with me in order for me to gain a literacy to then be able to observe and feel and um, recognize emotions in others. And by, by doing that and wanting to do that work, it allows you to have such better relationships, right? Whether it's like work or an intimate relationship or family relationships, um, you know, and, and in this book, um, Emotional Intelligence, they talk about how people with better emotional intelligence tend to have greater mental health, greater job performance, greater leadership skills, greater creative abilities. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we all end up working with others at some point. And it's like the work we do for ourselves is essentially doubled because it allows us to work better with others. And um, yeah, I think as a physio, I really witnessed like whether it was in the hospital environment or in the clinic environment, emotional intelligence is like seriously lacking uh, in health professionals. And I think plugging that into existing health and, and rehab and medical professionals, even if we don't change what they learn, which I think needs to be revised, just plugging in some emotional intelligence could probably accentuate the effectiveness of everything that gets done. It just seems like a really big low hanging fruit. And the fact that it hasn't been done tells me that there's some resistance to it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Emotional intelligence, uh, the, I've, I've reframed my definition of this over the last few days based on my new revelations um, and realizations. And that is that if we recognize that the feeling body is actually driving the car and that it speaks to the thinking brain in sensations and impulses and like feelings. Um, and that our feeling body is comprised of all of our life experiences and those people that influenced us as we were coming up. Then, and the thinking brain, when you talk about having the literacy, the thinking brain goes through, recognizes that it's mutually beneficial for the thinking brain if it spends time um, in that internal hygiene. So like you talked about wounds festering, right? Like that emotional, physical injuries and disease aren't just from the external world. It's like storage inside of our bodies that doesn't get cleaned out and results in disease over time. So if the thinking brain understands that, it can then start to give, because we have over, fetishize the, the, the intellectual part of us and we have ignored the feeling body, if we give enough time and attention to the feeling body, then, and to learn the language, right? Not to just talk to itself in words, but to actually let the feeling body create space and time to let the feeling body have its say, then the feeling body starts to trust that the thinking brain knows what the hell it's doing. And then there becomes like this nice balance, mutually beneficial balance, yeah, like which a is a long- Instead of being at war, they form a team. Exactly. And then it's so badass. 
but um, so emotional intelligence is when the thinking brain understands the feeling body's language, the feeling body trusts the thinking brain is going to indulge, you know, some of the fun stuff and it's not like going to be a tyrant and um, it can like let loose and stuff. Sometimes there's balance, right? It's not like just like you got to be healthy and this is the definition. They work together. Yeah. There's a map drawn and the feeling brain is like, maybe we'll take a little pit stop here and there, but yeah, I'll go where you want to go. Um, and I think that it really, I see this more and more that emotional intelligence 20 years ago, nobody even would say that word, kind of like Reiki. Like now everybody has at least heard the term Reiki, which is really kind of like Reiki actually is the mas massage for the feeling body. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that's what I have to say about emotional intelligence. That's great. That's a great practical um, metaphor to illustrate emotional intelligence because emotional intelligence is kind of like a dry word, right? But yeah. I think you did a good job at unpacking it. Um, expanding feelings vocabulary. So this was something that um, in that podcast with Rangan Chatterjee and David and Carol, they talk about, you know, it's like to read a book, I need to have a foundational vocabulary so I can interpret the words and understand what I'm reading. And I think in parallel to that, in order to recognize identify and express my feelings, I need a foundational vocabulary of feelings so I can identify the right ones, yeah. right? So in this book, Connect, um, they have this sort of appendix where it talks about uh, different feelings and, you know, like happy, caring, depressed, inadequate, fearful, confused, hurt, guilt or shame, lonely and angry. So those are the feelings. But what they do is they build this database of levels of intensity. So for each one of those headings, there's mild, moderate, and strong, and they list a bunch of different words. And just referring to that intermittently allows me to have a much broader, it's like, it's like if I'm trying to paint something, I have six colors, I have a limited combination of things I can paint. If I'm painting something and I have 30 colors, I can paint something much more vivid and I have way more options. And so, you know, examples are for happy, they go in and, and from mild, moderate, and strong, it would be like glad, cheerful, or thrilled. Right. Thrilled is like a really strong expression of happy uh, with fearful. You know, the mild would be like nervous, then it's afraid, then it's terrified. And so the ability to articulate these things and even with anger it would be like disgusted, offended or like enraged would be the strongest form. And being able to identify the feeling and also map out the intensity of that feeling gives you a much better understanding of how to make sense of these things. And it also allows you to make sense of other people when they're expressing those things, even if they don't understand it, you can begin to recognize it in them and be able to develop approaches to communicating and helping and dealing with people who are um, essentially just being controlled by their emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And because you can identify it, you can kind of better understand them. You can relate to them more. And I think that makes us more compassionate if we can relate to Absolutely. them. Absolutely. I love the idea too, that, I mean, I feel like, I feel like funny, like it's funny, you know? It's like there's humor, there's humor in there where you now, instead of overreacting to somebody else, you're like, look at that. Look at their driver. Yeah. Your yeah, driver's yeah. careening over Martha's the garden again. That's the so does not have a license. They should not have a license. <laughs> and it does. I think it really does. Um, it, it does implore like compassion. It's like, you can yeah. feel it. You, I feel, and I feel like there's, there's also just the absurdity of how hilarious that, that visual is, is that we're just yeah. like, 
we're all just, again, it just comes back to where these giant children in like adult bodies, just trying to work it out, you know, and create a sense of meaning and hope as we go move forward. Yeah. yeah it's like, I got this visual of like an adult driving their car over Martha's garden to get to Duncan's and be like, oh, that person's a dick. And then I get a visual of this little kid that can't even see over the windshield like, driving sugar, over Martha's sugar, garden. And you're like, Poor little guy. I hope he doesn't hurt himself. You know, that's the approach we need to take is just view everyone as having like a little child in the driver's seat, doesn't know what they're doing. They're not trying to harm anyone. They're don't take it personally. They're not directing it at you. They're just out of freaking control. Like stay out of the way to avoid damage, but like maybe help them not crush a bunch of people. Oh my gosh, Nick, I just had this most vivid flashback. So, you know, you know, our friend Miriam, the foot nerd, she's one of my um, dearest friends from way back in the day. And now like little things are starting to come back and make sense. We used to have these names for our alter egos, but now I'm like, oh, that was mine was Fiona. And now I realize like, oh, Fiona wasn't my alter ego, or we called the voices in the boardroom. Fiona was my, when you said the little kid driving. Um, Fiona is my feeling body. And I remember Miriam, she's super wise. And one time she said, I was having some kind of weird meltdown around my bank account. (laughs) And I think I was like, whatever bad decision I had made or whatever, I was just like, fucking out of control. And I don't know what I was doing. And I was going to write a check that was going to bounce or something. And then I remember Miriam's like, Ruth, do you really think Fiona should be writing the check right now or something like that? You know, <laughs> such great, that's such a great story. And it just reminds me of like you saying, like seeing the little kid in the driver's seat, you know, like yeah. not really knowing where to go, but just kind of just going where the soft animal of the body wants to go, no matter right. what, screw everyone. Um, but I, and I think I if know. we just, if I think if we think of ourselves, if we observe ourselves and we get out of control, because we all do at some points, right? Mm-hmm. The goal is to learn every time you get out of control to avoid doing that next time. But if instead of feeling shame for something shitty we did, we just mm-hmm. looked at ourselves as like, oh, that little kid got in the car again. Who gave him the keys? Like, yeah. we got to hide the keys from that kid and yeah. make good on all the damage that was done. I think that's a much more um, playful and lighthearted way of of dealing with things instead of like just beating ourselves up for doing something wrong. It's like, it just happened. So like, let's productively learn from this as a lesson, because if we learn from it, then it's not a bad thing. Um, Yeah. yeah. Assigning meaning, right? Like, so we have those three choices. So the first choice is like, I'm a piece of crap because that's how I responded, whether I missed the day at the gym or I ruined Martha's garden or ate too much sugar. Um, The B is like, I deserve that. And you create some sense of self-entitlement. Like I worked hard or I, you know, like, I don't need to feel bad about that. And then the third choice is like what you said, like we can, this happened. Let's negotiate to tiny habits, right? That was another, the the last point I want to make in our lesson today is that tiny habits is just becoming so much more vivid and clear now on how we, it's like a, a genuine communication between the thinking brain and the feeling body to get to the, the lowest common denominator, the smallest, tiniest thing that the feeling body will get on board with. And then you can build on that. And then the tiny habit becomes the long-term health, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love those three options. Beat yourself up. You justify it. Martha's garden wasn't even that nice anyway. Yeah. Or Martha's, Martha's like, a bitch. <laughs> yeah, or you're like, I need to go help Martha with her garden because I've messed it up. And maybe next time we eat half as much sugar instead of that much sugar, exactly. right? It's like you bargaining and learning. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bargaining. That was the key, Nick. Bargaining yeah. and negotiating. 
There we go. So last thing before we get into experiments, I really like this heuristic and this framework from Mark Brackett. Um, and it's called a ruler, just like a, a normal ruler. Uh, so I'll go through it quickly, but maybe um, rewind and write these down because I think it's really powerful as a framework for um, productively leveraging our, our emotions and feelings instead of getting um, consumed by them. So the R is recognize. So recognizing emotions in ourselves and others. The U is understanding the causes and consequences of emotions. So first we need to recognize them, then we can seek to understand them. L is labeling, labeling them accurately. So we don't want to mislabel. And in order to label them accurately, we have to have an expanded vocabulary to choose labels from. E is expressing emotions appropriately, right? There's a difference between expressing emotions with zero filter and then expressing them appropriately. And then the R is regulating emotions effectively. So kind of related to expressing, it's like, um, holding ourselves accountable to regulate our emotions so that they're not, once again, we're not acting out. We can still express that emotion, but we should probably, we could probably work towards doing it in a better way based on feedback from others and a bit of self-awareness. So ruler is recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate. And I think that's a really, you know, it's like a little nugget, but if you start to apply that in your life, I think it'll be a lot more concrete and it has definitely been, um, for me. <clears throat> so um let's go through some experiments and then we'll wrap this up so uh here are some templates and experiments are always just suggestions or templates they are not prescriptions you don't have to do any of these but you should do some experiments to practically apply what you've learned um, from lessons that's how you truly learn so uh, number one write down how you feel right now and at least three descriptors right write down and if you don't know uh, like just look up a feelings repository uh, if you look up a list of feelings, for example, online, you'll have a big list. Um, and actually, let me go find where, oh yeah, if you look up mood meter on Google, it gives you this entire matrix of feelings, of different intensities, of, of um, different emotions. And it's, it's a really good one. If you just look up mood meter online, write down how you feel right now with at least three descriptors. Number two, pick someone to go deeper when asked, how are you, right? Like Ruth and I, we did this for a while where you know everyone says how are you doing it's like oh good like we don't even think twice it's like how are you actually doing it's like well i feel anxious i feel sad because of this you know like find someone and basically say when i ask you how you're doing or when you ask me how i'm doing let's take a couple seconds and actually say how we're feeling and obviously this person has to have a an appropriate relationship with you for you to do that right like mm -hmm. jimmy at the office at the water thing says how you doing it's like well i'm depressed i'm angry it's like probably not appropriate mm -hmm. so pick the right person um a daily emotion entry into your health log so at the end of each day maybe list one emotion and why you felt that emotion i think that's a good experiment self-awareness um another good experiment is write down the last time you got stuck in an argument with someone uh, because you let your emotions get the best of you uh, note a time when you became overwhelmed by an emotion. That's kind of the same one as the last one. So I could probably delete that. And then the last one is write down three people in your life that you feel safe discussing feelings and emotions with. Um, and I had like, as I was writing that, I had to think, I was like, wow, I don't have that many people in my life. I have way more than I used to have because now I actually know the value of talking about feelings and emotions. But, um, I think that's a really good exercise. And if you don't have very many, maybe, uh, a good experiment is to find someone who you can make a pact with to say, this is a safe partnership to talk about feelings and emotions without judgment um, mm -hmm. as a way to sort of explore together, right? Like be witnessed and witness. Mm -hmm. um, 
So anything else to say before we wrap this one up, Ruthie Pop? No, I was just going to add a an experiment that I'll I'll post a link to, which is a five or I think it's five or seven minutes brain heart coherence meditation. And it's it's going through some a breathing exercise and kind of messing around with your breathing patterns and your heart rate. And I'll I'll post that in the GitHub link. Perfect. Yeah, we'll put that. That'll be a good layer three resource. So we hope you found this lesson helpful uh, and you took some valuable notes in your log. Listening to this is proof of work. Thank you for taking responsibility for your health. And we hope that you're able to connect with your learning partner uh, and your pod mates to discuss what, what, what was covered in this lesson and to explore it deeper and to really apply some of the stuff. Um, and also after applying it, come back, share your insights, share it with Ruth and I, share it with your pod mates. I think that's really how we learn at an accelerated rate is just by sharing the experiences we're having um, and the lessons we're learning. So um, thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next lesson. Ciao for now. Yep. Ciao for now, nerds. Ciao for now. <laughs>